I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Podcast public service announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. So that wraps up our second conspiracist tome. But if all of these allegations are completely off base, as Mr. Greeley has clearly demonstrated, then what are the actual problems with the Fed, the ones that these conspiracy allegations tend to obscure? You'll recall that he alluded to an institutional blindness that afflicts not only the well-meaning folks who work for the Fed, but also even flatters and in some ways defangs the guard dogs who are supposed to report on them to the public. The Fed reporters. Exactly. But why is this so all-fired important anyway? Remember way back when we first started talking about what the Fed does? Eight times per year it votes on whether or not to take any action on the federal funds rate. That is, the target interest rate at which banks loan to each other overnight. The Fed then announces the change, if any, and by how much it has changed. In that ceremony that Breen mentioned earlier, where the reporters sit in reporter jail and hammer out their thoughts on what the change means. You'll recall hearing that the Fed raised the federal funds rate by half a point back in May of 2022, for example. Those changes have a tendency to make banks loan more when the interest rate is low or less when it's higher. And banks' willingness to loan in turn impacts the availability of credit and therefore ripples into everything from inflation to mortgage rates. Right. And now Mr. Greeley will explain a bit more about the work the Fed does and how the institutional blindness we mentioned before impacts that effort. It has what it always refers to as a dual mandate, full employment and stable prices. It is assumed the more you encourage banks to make loans, the more dollars there will be in the economy. People will be spending more dollars. They'll be more confident. The demand for workers will be higher, which means wages will go up, which means it's possible that you could get inflation. It's also possible that you could get deflation. Oh God, this is so complicated. Again, this is why people wonder whether there are people inside the Fed cackling because this is so complicated to explain. So the Fed has this dual mandate. In the last several years, the Fed sort of openly admitted that it had not taken unemployment seriously enough. The Fed will move back and forth in terms of what it thinks is important. Generally, if you are wealthy, it's more likely that people owe you money. And so you don't want inflation because if people owe you money, when you get inflation, like the value of the money that people owe you declines. So you don't want that. You also have a lot of wealth. You don't want to see that wealth inflated away. The poor you are, the higher incentive that you have to see inflation. You probably owe money. So the value of what you owe might get inflated away. You probably are less concerned about an overheating economy. Makes sense. You're more worried about inflation if you have a bunch of money in the bank that is losing purchasing power by the day than you are if you have a salary that keeps going up with inflation and fixed rate mortgage and car notes that get cheaper by the day. Exactly. But guess which group the people who work at the Fed are more likely to socialize with? Uh, the money havers? 
Yes, and business owners who pay salaries and therefore have to keep up with those employees' demands for more money during an inflationary period. So this chummy relationship with bankers and other capitalists means the Fed historically has been more focused on dealing with one of its mandates than the other. The Fed has tended to worry more about inflation than it has about unemployment. And that's because, again, it's not a conspiracy. It's just that, you know, people who are in financial markets and people who are around financial markets just tend to be wealthier. And even if they aren't personally very wealthy, they hang out with people who are. You just sort of all share the values. And you sincerely believe these values, by the way. This is not cackling. Backers tend to be wealthy. They don't like inflation. And they don't like inflation because it writes down the value of their assets. So this is already a way in which the unconscious biases of the Fed will tend to make it friendlier to the moneyed classes. But then this particular problem is compounded by the fact that the people who work at the Fed have a tendency in public interviews to obscure what the institution actually does. The Fed is a bank. It's a special bank that's got special privileges, but it is a bank. It's got a balance sheet. The dollars that everybody wants are dollars that are on the Fed's balance sheet. They are the most important dollars of the world. But the Fed creates those dollars. It manufactures them exactly the way your bank manufactures dollars for you. Ben Bernanke, there's a very famous interview that he did with 60 Minutes where he says, uh, yeah, no, we just, uh, we, just, we just do it. We just mark up the Fed's bank account and it's, uh, it's money. Scott Pelley's like, what? And Ben Bernanke is like, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's how it happens. The banks have um, accounts with the Fed much the same way that you have an account in a commercial bank. So to lend to a bank, we simply use the computer to mark up the uh, size of the account that they have with the Fed. So it's much more akin, uh, although not exactly the same, but it's much more akin to printing money than it is to borrowing. You've been printing money. Well, effectively, and we need to do that. Ben Bernanke knows that the Fed is a bank. He ran the Fed. He's one of the world's most respected economists. He's a thoughtful guy. But Ben Bernanke doesn't want to explain how the Fed works because he thinks it's too complicated and beside the point. And right there, that is the hairline crack through which you start to see conspiracies. There is no conspiracy. It appears to me that the way the Fed manufactures money, he believes that to be too complicated and not to the point. So by treating the public with kid gloves, they obscure their real functioning and purpose in a way that tends to both keep everyday people from understanding the Fed and leaves the field wide open for the conspiracists to make shit up? Exactly. You know, this clip is eternal. I see it all the time. Bitcoin maximalists love this clip. Fed conspiracists love this clip because the veil was lifted. But what was actually going on was it was just too complicated for Ben Bernanke to explain that the Fed is a bank. So you've got deposits at the Fed. So banks can hold something called reserves which is a deposit at the Fed, just like you have deposits in the First National Bank of Jesuit in your checking account. The Fed can create those deposits however it likes by buying any number of different kinds of assets. So the Fed has some flexibility to buy municipal bonds. It doesn't like to do that. And I have asked at Fed conferences, why isn't there more of a push to buy municipal bonds? And why isn't there more of a push to go to Congress and say, instead of buying treasuries, which would then allow the federal government to spend money. Why aren't we helping cities make the transformation to the infrastructure that they're going to have to do to adapt to climate change by finding a sort of statutory way that the Fed is allowed to buy certain kinds of municipal debt? The answer that I always get is, we can't do that. It would be political. That makes my head explode because the way the Fed manufactures dollars now is that it's got a list of 25 large banks and it buys treasuries from those large banks, and it credits them with reserves, with deposits. That is an intensely political act. You are choosing which assets to create. You could, for example, 
go to Congress and say, we would like to be able to buy credit card receivables because we want to make sure that ordinary Americans have access to liquidity when they need it through credit cards because we want to bring down credit card rates. They don't even think about it. They, they, they don't think about any other kinds of money except the money they create with the largest banks. It doesn't feel political to them because it's the way it's always been done. But of course, it's an intensely political choice. Only a few banks can create new reserves by selling treasuries. Those reserves are then supposed to make those banks feel more confident about making loans. But it doesn't work out that way. The problem is broader, though, as Breen explains to us in talking about the Fed's actions around the world during the pandemic. At the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of foreign banks held dollars. People started demanding those dollars, and they were worried they would not have enough. So the Federal Reserve very quickly did what's called a currency swap. It went to a fairly large list of central banks, not just the European Central Bank, but I think also like all the way to the South African Central Bank. The Fed agrees to give them Federal Reserve dollars. And in exchange, it'll take their currency temporarily. In theory, this is in case the Fed needs their money or they need the Fed's money. But like we all know what's going on. It's because during a crisis, foreign banks hold dollar denominated deposits. And then people show up to get their dollars and the banks don't have them. So then they go to their central bank and the central bank says, well, we actually don't have that many dollars. So the Federal Reserve very quickly made dollars available. It worked. They sort of floated the global financial system and they were all paid back. So there is a mechanism to get dollars all over the world. There was no mechanism to get dollars out to America. That feels insane to me. When we think of the paycheck protection loans, the biggest banks didn't write a ton of them in the beginning because they were scary and weird and they didn't understand it. And the, the banks that wrote a ton of them were community banks. I went out and hung out with a community banker in North Dakota for a while, and he talked about what he had to do to write these loans. If you want to create money for everybody, you have to care because it's not a good way to make money. He was driving in his pickup truck to people who didn't even have an email address mechanics, hairdressers. These people ran completely cash-based businesses. They did not keep records. They didn't know how to file for a loan. And so we had to sit down with them in the middle of a pandemic in the parking lot so everybody was somewhat safe and like figure out how to turn stuff they had in their head into documents so he could get them a loan. So at the very beginning of the pandemic, you had machinery at the Fed that immediately made dollars available all over the world. We did not have comparable machinery to make sure that hairdressers could take money that government was desperately trying to give them. It's not a conspiracy, but it is a consequence of what people care about. So finally, let's return to that crisis of conscience Breen had, the one where he realized the Fed didn't even have rules about decision makers trading on their own accounts, and the part he had played in that system. The thing that seemed to stick in his craw was that neither he nor any of the other reporters ever even checked the publicly available documents that eventually exposed the issue. Why was that? The Fed's financial disclosure forms were always out there. Anybody could have looked at them at any time. And Michael Derby at the Wall Street Journal just decided to do it. I was a Fed reporter. I could have done it. It just wasn't on my schedule of things to do. He just sort of reported out stuff that was already a matter of public record. But it took his initiative to say, isn't it weird that these people who are making financial decisions also are actively trading portfolios? Are we all okay with this? And the second he pointed that out, it turned out we weren't. That's not a conspiracy. That's well-meaning people who are inside a system that doesn't think that this is a bad thing. There is a system around the Fed that doesn't think about certain things, doesn't look at certain consequences of what the Fed does. It's a system of responsible, nice people, often creating bad outcomes. Nobody who works at the Fed has ever had to pawn something for money or taken out a payday loan. There are ways in which they do not experience the American economy. And these well-meaning, wealthy people whose job it is to understand the economy, they tend to be friends with other, even wealthier people. 
And that gives them just enormous blind spots when it comes to understanding how that economy really works for everybody else. Right in the middle of the pandemic, I was curious about how people were doing at pawn shops. They were all losing business because everybody who had gotten one of those checks from the federal government, they had not squandered it on booze and trifles. They had paid up free and clear with any money they owed. In particular, in the middle of the pandemic, I think it is likely, and certainly the pawn shop owner that I talked to said, we're just a retail store now. People come and if they want to sell stuff, we'll sell it. But the financial services that we used to offer don't really exist right now. They've been made liquid by the government. They don't need our help. And it's because the government just wrote them checks and they turned around and they paid off their accounts. And so I look for statistics. They do not exist. We don't track the way people access loans at pawn shops. We don't know. We don't have the data. And that was shocking to me. The Federal Reserve's statutory job is to be aware of all the different kinds of money there are in the system and all the different kinds of loans there are in the system so that they understand how new credit is being created and what kinds of money people are holding. A non-trivial number of Americans doesn't have a bank account. And a lot of those people, they don't have access to services to transfer money. They can't take their paycheck direct deposit. So they just spend a lot of time at payday lenders. And it's because the Fed doesn't think about it. They think about mortgages because they and people they know have mortgages. Okay, so you and Breen have done a lot to try to characterize the people who work at the Fed as victims of social, class, and institutional blindness. But at some point, this sounds a lot like dereliction of duty. I see why you would think that. But as Breen explained to us, at least some of those diligent, friendly, smart Fed people he spoke about earlier are really trying to break out of their bubble and listen to other perspectives. For about a year, the Fed held these events it called Fed Listens, where it had normal people in to talk about monetary policy. Local labor leaders, small business owners, they basically opened up and had a public conversation about monetary policy. I think the Fed started this as sort of an exercise in public relations and accidentally learned a ton of stuff because I was there for some of these meetings. For example, at the time that it was holding these meetings, the economy was incredibly hot. Wages were going up. A hot economy is really good, particularly for people who are sort of on the edge of the labor force, may have difficulty getting a job, may have a criminal record. It gives them a chance to get back in. In one of these conversations that I was watching, somebody said, you don't understand this hot labor market that you're talking about. It only just reached us. It may have been hot for you two years ago, but it takes a long time for a really good, healthy, rip-snorting labor market to make it all the way to the poorest communities. Now you're telling us when the benefits are only just getting to us, that you're thinking that you might be concerned that there's some inflation in the future and you're going to cut it off. You got to understand, like, that's not our experience. Everyone at the Fed was like, that's a really interesting point. You could see the room shift, like postures shifted. People started taking notes. Interesting. People in poor communities experience hot labor markets later. This should be like a basic law of physics that people already know to be true. But they had to hold an accidental PR event where they learned that it turns out that not everybody experiences the economy the same way. Are you finished explaining the Fed and its conspiracist detractors to us? Because that was a lot. 
Agreed. But do you feel like you understand what we're trying to get at here with this approach to conspiracies and the broader QAnon umbrella of irrationality? Sure. The dumb conspiracies surrounding not just the Fed, but many institutions and issues in modern life are obscuring the real problems, which may or may not be the result of conspiracy, but definitely need addressing regardless. And the simple fact that a bunch of loons are spewing nonsense and sometimes flex of semi-veiled racism all over these topics kind of tars anyone with a rational critique by association and keeps a problem-solving discussion from even getting started. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's because you wrote it. Couldn't have said it better, unicorn. Nice work. Before we jump to our next topic, let's spend just a little more time getting next-level stupid on this topic. Starting with... The Titanic. Like, the big boat that wasn't quite as ice-proof as hoped? The same. What the fuck does that ship have to do with the Federal Reserve? Okay. Remember how the Jekyll Island conspiracy to create the Fed was the indirect result of the Panic of 1907? Yeah? And remember how J.P. Morgan pretty much single-handedly shut down that panic by locking some bankers in a room and making them agree to pool their resources? Again? Rings a bell? Well, that's where QAnon comes in. Specifically, Q-Drop number 142, from November 12, 2017. There's a lot of really stupid shit about George Soros, Angela Merkel, etc. at the beginning, but we'll cut to the good stuff. Who died on the Titanic? What year did the Titanic sink? Why is this relevant? What exactly happened to the Titanic? What class of people were guaranteed a lifeboat? Why did select individuals not make it into the lifeboats? Why is this relevant? How do we know who was on the lifeboats, D or A? How were names and bodies recorded back then? When were tickets purchased for her maiden voyage? Who was specifically invited? Less than 10. What is the Fed? What does the Fed control? Who controls the Fed? Who approved the formation of the Fed? Why did H. Wood glorify Titanic as a tragic love story? Who lived in the movie, What Man? Why is this relevant? Opposite is true. What is brainwashing? What is a psyop? Ah, uh, nice to hear from Computer Guy again, even though that does mean we have to hear more QAnon bullshit. Was that the end of the drop? No, there was more about how the Hindenburg blimp disaster was also a conspiracy, and name checks for the films Snow White, Iron Eagle, and the Jason Bourne series. Again, people take this shit seriously? They do indeed. I weep for the future. That's certainly one option. To elaborate on the clues which the troll behind QAnon clearly wanted his followers to pick up on, there was an already existing conspiracy theory which Mr. Greeley covered for us, which alleged that the Panic of 1907 was deliberately fomented by J.P. Morgan, etc., to gin up support for creating a central bank against the wishes of the American people. The Titanic conspiracy starts with the suggestion that five years later, in 1912, Morgan was running into a problem getting his precious Federal Reserve idea across the finish line. Turns out the men standing in his way were three of the richest non-Morgan human beings on the planet. Namely, John Jacob Astor IV, Benjamin Guggenheim, and Isidore Strauss. Morgan had a nefarious plan. He would lure these men onto a death trap, the brand new, allegedly unsinkable boat that was owned by... Who was that again, Unicorn? Trying to access my vague 25-year-old memories of a James Cameron movie. Uh, was it the White Star Line? 
Very good. And that British company was, in turn, owned by a holding company. And do you know who was the sole owner of that holding company? Well, it seems safe to assume that it was none other than J.P. Morgan, because I understand how narratives work. Well, kind of taking the wind out of my sails there, but yeah. So, the theory is that J.P. Morgan, close to realizing his dream of creating a U.S. central bank, which he could totally control and use to sell out the American people to international bankers. And make a mint in the process, yes. Right. Anywho, some other Richie Richies were against this plan, and so he sunk the Titanic. You make it sound stupid, Unicorn. But let's see what you think after this dramatization of a real meeting that totally happened in the autumn of 1911. Sir, you sent for me? Ah, Bainbridge. Just the man I need. I have to take care of a spot of business, and your skills are just what the current situation requires. As always, happy to be of help, sir. Good man. You'll recall how we've surreptitiously set the stage for the establishment of a third central bank of the United States. You'll pardon me, but isn't it technically a multi-bank reserve system? Bosh, Bainbridge. We are men of the world. And may we speak candidly? Apologies, sir. And yes, the Jekyll Island meetings last year went off without a hitch. In fact, my sources in Congress and the Wilson administration indicate passage of the law in the next year or two is likely. Top-notch work as always. But you may be shocked to learn that the illicit meeting in Georgia was only the final step in a long series of conspiracies I have undertaken to reach this point. For example, I have personally engineered the last several financial panics this country has experienced. You've... what was that, sir? The crippling financial panic of 1907, only solved when I brought together the heads of the major banks and locked them in a room until they developed a plan to stop the entire economy of the nation from falling apart. Some have called it your finest hour, sir. (laughs) Indeed, but they wouldn't if they knew I had deliberately set the whole thing in motion. You... But how? Why? (laughs) Let's not worry much about the details. Suffice it to say that I planted the notion of a foolish attempt to corner the copper market in the mind of Otto and Augustus Hines, then manipulated the Knickerbocker Trust to overextend themselves in support of that effort. Yada, yada. All the trusts start collapsing, including ours. And I managed to fix everything in the nick of time. I don't know whether I'm more shocked at the genius of your crime, its audacity, or its unlikely intricacy. It must have been nearly impossible to pull that off while leaving no trace of your manipulation. Again, don't concern yourself with how ridiculously unlikely this plan was, Bainbridge. After all, panic happened, right? So clearly, the plan went off without a hitch. As did my similar efforts in 1896. And that beauty of a disaster I arranged in 1873. You caused the Long Depression? People starve, sir. In God's name, why? Because I have an infallible ability to tell the future and foresaw that just the right number of financial conflagrations at just the right cadence could create a new political opportunity to finally get out from under the shadow of Andrew Jackson. We could build a new U.S. Central Bank under my exclusive control. This meeting never happened, Jesuit. Hush, Dana. This shit is getting good. Skittles? But sir, while your interests will surely benefit from the stability a central bank would provide, the bank proposed would be answerable only to Congress. 
you wouldn't actually control it. Never mind that, Bainbridge. I'll figure out how to seize total control later. For the moment, though, I have one final scheme to set in motion. You're aware of the Ocean Line as our White Star subsidiary is recently built. Yes, sir. Olympic, Britannic, and there's one other, but the name slips my mind. Ah, it's that third one that is our subject, my good man. The Titanic, it's called. I want you to Lord Jacob Astor, Benjamin Guggenheim, and Issa Strauss onto that ship when it leaves Southampton bound for New York next spring. I'm not sure how I would go about that, but why in the name of- Tell them it's unprecedentedly luxurious and virtually unsinkable. Tell them, <laughs> tell them I'm going to be on board. I'll arrange at the last minute to have business keep me away. I hesitate to even ask, sir, but what is your plan for these men once aboard? I'm going to run the ship into an iceberg and ensure there aren't enough lifeboats to save all of the passengers. Being men of station, they will naturally allow women and children to take their places and will therefore drown. How? Do you plan to tow an iceberg into the ship's path? Or somehow convince the crew to throw their lives away running into an easily avoidable water hazard? And still more, why? Why this insane, unlikely scheme that would surely kill hundreds, thousands of innocent passengers? To ensure those three don't stop the creation of the Federal Reserve. But Senator Aldrich has already introduced the legislation. It's being modified and amended, but we know its basic shape. Aside from making their feelings known, could these men do anything to prevent the bank's adoption? Could you even stop it at this point? Not exactly, no. And wouldn't they, as wealthy investors, benefit from the system's stability, just as you will? One would suppose so. And aside from the terrible deliberate loss of life, won't sinking the ship be a major loss to your investment in White Star? Indeed. I've arranged for the ship to be insured far below its worth to throw off any suspicions that come my way after the fact. I'll lose millions. Ah, of course. One final question. Do these men oppose the creation of the Federal Reserve? Well, Strauss has actually spoken in favor of it. And the other two don't seem to oppose it and haven't taken numerous opportunities to speak out against it. But I just can't take any chances. Well, Bainbridge, what do you think of my plan? It's an excellent plan, sir. I'm happy to be aboard. <laughs> sir, I suggest we fill in the details to make sure the plot is watertight. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're thinking. What a slam dunk of a plan. Please note that even the fictional, purely evil, future-seeing mastermind J.P. Morgan satirized in the preceding sketch missed the fact that he was destined to kick the bucket a few months before the Federal Reserve System became law. And after he went to so much trouble to somehow control the whole U.S. economy. Seems like a lot of wasted effort. Given how silly all of this is when dramatized, we're not going to bother with much follow-up, but it is hardly the only Looney Tunes QAnon theory about the Fed. And yet, as donkey-brained as these bloviators are, we have one extra special contender in reserve, a book called... Actually, Dana, could you do the honors? Ugh. The Roots of the Federal Reserve, Tracing the Nephilim from Noah to the U.S. Dollar. I don't know what Nephilim are, but based on my tenure here, I guarantee goddamn tea is fucking stupid. There's a good chance, especially since we start strong with this quote from a QAnon drop. 
Symbolism will be their downfall. Next, we get to know author Laura Stanger, who believes that the good Lord himself called her to write this book in order to identify the true, sinister roots of the Fed and answer questions like, What are the ancient roots of defilement and deception buried deep in the land that nourished the incubation of the Federal Reserve? Are there ancient pagan occult symbols that shed light on the root system of the Federal Reserve? Is the hidden agenda of the central banking system intertwined with the Nephilim agenda? What principality do the masterminds of the Federal Reserve serve? I can already tell I'm going to have some non-native English speaker understanding issues here. Are the Nephilim some sort of religious group? Well, I mean, kinda. Like, there are reference to the book of Genesis, and while hard and fast definitions are hard to come by for some of the concepts in those early books of the Torah slash Bible, they're probably giants, maybe the offspring of angels who had sex with human women. Ah, of course. And what the fuck does she mean when she asks what principality the Fed serves? Oh, that's a reference to one of the letters of the Apostle Paul. In some evangelical Christian circles, it's a code word for demonic influence or possession. Excellent. I am sure this will all make sense shortly. Not bloody likely. It wasn't until 2017 that I realized investigating the roots of the Federal Reserve was an assignment the Lord had given me. So why me? I struggled at first with the idea. Oh, did she? Not for long. Thanks to the paradigm shift. What shift is that, exactly? Thanks to the paradigm shift I experienced during graduate school, I now realize that spiritual beings are real. I have also come to understand that the spiritual realm is, in fact, more real than the physical realm. I now recognize that there are demons, angels, and other spiritual beings that exist in other dimensions. Let me tell you about a dream I had. Oh, please, you're not going to make me hear about those lunatics' dreams, are you? Okay, fine. But now we get to the juicy part. What you might find intriguing is that we can trace the imprint of giants across virtually every region on Earth. We will dig into the history of the giants and look at their lineage as we march toward uncovering the roots of the Federal Reserve. Wait, the Federal Reserve was founded by giants? Like, fee-fi-fo-fum giants? We don't need you trivializing all of these important ideas, Dana. I'm confident Satan swelled with pride at the birth of the Nephilim. These giants bore the resemblance of him. They were born with treason, lust, deceit, rebellion, and pride in their spiritual DNA. We will see these same characteristics in the architects of the Federal Reserve. I'm sure you're wondering at this point how we, the naive public, who have not been sent on a mission from God to expose the Nephilim giants who created the Fed, can recognize these frightening sons of Satan when we encounter them in our daily lives. I am not in any way wondering that. Luckily, Sanger has a very scientific list of proposed criteria for classifying someone as a Nephilim host, including three or more of the following physical characteristics. One, excessively tall. 
two, extraordinarily strong. Three, polydactyl, six fingers and or six toes. Four, red hair. But what if the potential demon giant doesn't have three or more of these characteristics, I hear you wondering? Again, I am definitely not. You can also identify Nephilim hosts if they have five or more of a list of 20 or so behavioral characteristics, including a number of QAnon favorite items, like Lustfulness in conjunction with sexual misconduct Participation in sorcery, witchcraft, and or the occult Excessive focus on death-related topics and or symbolism Sexual perversion involving pedophilia, sexual domination of others against their will, and or bestiality. Trafficker of humans. Engage in cannibalism. Commit treasonous acts. Pervasive pattern of engagement in sexual and or blood occult rituals. Commit human sacrifices. Enslavement of others. And if you're worried that all of this sounds like our author is pulling it out of her ass, rest assured that the criteria for classification of a Nephilim host was corroborated by historical records detailing the physical traits and character traits of giants across the globe. Among the Golden Isles in Georgia, Jekyll Island is part of this chain of coastal islands, quote, Proof of a prehistoric race of giants, unquote, was discovered. The skulls of some of these giants were described as the, quote, long-headed type, unquote, and followed closely the characteristics of the Timaquan tribe who inhabited Jekyll Island. There appears to be a cover-up of the remains of giants found in North America, and it's likely the Smithsonian Institute is at the center of this controversy. Traces of giants can be found on every continent. We did not investigate Antarctica. From the time of the flood to modern day, the Nephilim agenda has not been eradicated and instead spreads like a global pandemic. Jesper, how much more of this is there? Oh, we're just now getting to the offensive part. Ready for a particularly egregious proof of Jesuit's maxim of conspiracy underpinnings, copyright not actually pending? Not really. Because one of the biggest Nephilim host groups, again, according to this space cadet, happens to be the Khazars, who in turn begat the Ashkenazi Jews, i.e., those Jewish people of European extraction, as opposed to those whose ancestors remained in the Middle East after the Jewish diaspora. Per our author, these folks were of an ancestry aligned with Satan and were wild, red-haired, rugged, exploitive, barbarians, murderous, syncretistic, vengeful, and opportunistic. And there's more. You know why the Federal Reserve Bill was passed near Christmas time? It was? Yeah, and you might assume that was because it was a tough fight in the Senate and sponsors were eager to get it over the line before Congress broke for their end-of-year recess. Because that's what actually happened? Well, that's what the lamestream scholars would have you think. But Ms. Sanger knows the truth. That The spirit behind Christmas is in fact Nimrod, and within the spirit of Nimrod lies the root of all paganism and occult worship. Nimrod? Not going deep here, he's a bad guy from the Bible who is traditionally said to have ordered the building of the Tower of Babel. Also, very unlikely to have existed. 
Anyway, she goes on about this Christmas Fed bill passage. Consider the gravity of this. The timing of the birth of this beastly bill was orchestrated to pay homage to the spirit of Nimrod. Senators that would have normally given an ardent fight against this beast instead rolled over and placated it for the sake of Christmas tide. I am getting a whiff of a stench that is generally unmistakable. A stench produced from a rotten core. Could it be that at the very core of the Federal Reserve Act is a pact that was made with a Nephilim? Holy shit, what is this lady talking about? Unclear, but delicious. We hope it goes without saying that she, of course, incorporates the most blood-soaked forgery in history, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, See episode two of the show, but unfortunately, given its huge ongoing influence, this horrible anti-Semitic piece of shit tract comes up all the time around here. So the Fed was made by the probably Jewish heirs of the evil Nimrod, who were also red-headed giants called Khazars, and the demon worshippers who built the instrument of our financial enslavement initiated their dastardly conspiracy on Jekyll Island because that's a place where these evil giants lived in past centuries. And the whole thing is a pact with ancient descendants of evil angels who fucked human ladies in the era of the Garden of Eden. But fortunately, it's not all bad news. She offers readers a plan to fix all of this. And that is? Well, there are a lot of steps, but they all boil down to very specific types of evangelical Christian prayers. Great. You didn't expose Breen to all of this, did you? You know it. Oh, Jesuit. I know. It's not nice, but I can't normally subject the experts I interview on this show to this level of stupid. But Greeley, he's a friend. We're real, genuine, close buddies. And that means I can torture him to my heart's content, and he'll still take my calls. It's like a science experiment, one that makes me giggle. Besides, at first he was even having fun. It wasn't until 2017 that I realized investigating the roots of the Federal Reserve was an assignment the Lord had given me. I kind of feel that way sometimes. I now realize that spiritual beings are real. Okay. That's not the monetary program they have where I go to school. We haven't covered spiritual beings yet. Oh, he's a truth seeker. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, she's a truth seeker. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I simply assumed that all conspiracy theorists were men. That's really obnoxious of me. Okay, well, all right. Scolds among you may want to accuse him of sexism here, but if you've listened to this show for a while, you've heard us note a million and one times that crazy ideas are promoted by all gender identities. But let's face it, mostly men. We will dig into the history of the Giants and look at their lineage as we march toward uncovering the roots of the Federal Reserve. I mean, I can't even argue with this. Whatever, I guess. So these are bad people. So Nephilim are bad? All right. We'll see the same characteristics in the architects of the Federal Reserve. <laughs> is this like, are Nephilim in the Bible? I feel like I don't remember that. Like, is this? Oh, they are. Listen, I wish for all of us that we care about something as deeply as this woman cares about the Nephilim. Among the Golden Isles in Georgia, proof of a prehistoric race of Giants was discovered? What? The skulls of these giants were described as the long-headed type and followed closely the characteristics of the Timucuan tribe who inhabited Jekyll. What? There appears to be a cover-up of the remains of giants found in North... Oh, I feel like that's a much bigger deal than the Fed. That feels like way more significant than monetary policy. Trace of these giants can be found on every continent. <laughs> I love this. Can be found on every continent. We did not investigate Antarctica. Yeah, duh, because Antarctica doesn't have a central bank. The only continent in the world without a central bank. See? Good times. Two old chums chuckling over the rantings of a pie-eyed loop-de-loo. That is, until he got to my choice cuts of the book's really anti-Semitic excerpts. Anti-Semitic theories and money, that's, yeah, okay, sure. The Khazars. Cool. Ooh, ooh, 
They were a violent, warlike people who engaged in sexual excesses, usury, and slave trading. That describes a lot of the ancient world, but okay. <laughs> I love that these guys are like savages on horseback emerging from Asia, lending each other money. At this point in our investigation, we are drawing close to be able to connect the dots between the Edomites, the Khazars, the Ashkenazi Jews. Oh, this is gross. Jesuit, this is gross. Wait, hold on. No, no, hold on. Is your entire life investigating various ways that people have of not liking Jews? I don't like nothing in my work has prepared me to respond to a race of giants that were actually demons that lived on Jekyll Island. Like I have no response to this. <laughs> you like brought me on your show to be an expert. And now I just feel scared and dirty. So I, I love you. This has been awful. I'm going to go hug my children. Having completed the task of horrifying our generous expert, we say goodbye to him, and in fact, the whole topic of QAnon's theories about the Federal Reserve, and move on to a subject that underlies perhaps the most important and frightening news stories of our time, the uniquely conspiracist culture that is Russia. Russia.